Our Father, we come to you this morning recognizing, God, that life does not always make sense to us. And Lord, there are, are times that are, are very difficult for, for us to understand, especially as we observe the circumstances that go on around us. But we thank you, God, that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your word. But Lord, sometimes to understand is, is not enough. Sometimes to, 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 to understand what it means to live out the things that you have revealed to us is so important. Sometimes, God, we need the strength to do so. So we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear, but also, Lord, that you would apply your word to our heart to be able to live out these things. Lord, to, to know and to understand the comfort that only you give in the difficult times of our lives. We thank you, Lord, and, and pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, I was thinking this week that, that life, really, if you think about it, is a very interesting journey, isn't it? You know, most of us have happy memories, maybe of a day at the lake or in the mountains with family or friends. You know, having a time when we can just sort of get away and swim or, or maybe go hiking and just be together with others that we know and eat food and laugh and tell stories and stay up late into the night. And maybe even as we think about such memories, it's just sort of there's a fondness in us. We just sort of like, oh, yes, that is just so good to enjoy times like that with other people. It just sort of brings a smile to our face. But also, you know, it's funny that life can also sort of kick us in the gut. And sometimes... Uh, it does so so hard that it, it seems to knock the wind out of us. And we receive news that are sometimes difficult to, to receive and maybe even things that we thought we'd never hear in a million years. Maybe it's the, the terminal illness of, of a loved one. Or maybe it's the loss of a lifelong friendship over some circumstance that just seemed trivial. And you think, why are we alienated from one another? Or maybe it's the realization that the hope of a lifelong dream has now come to an end. And it's time to let go of that and to move on to something else. Maybe it's a love that you expected to last a lifetime, but it comes to an abrupt end in the breakup of a relationship. Maybe it's financial ruin. Maybe it's the, the news of a friend that you grew up with in, in church who has now told you that they no longer believe in Jesus Christ and they're not trusting in Him. You know, life can be really good, but there also can be a lot of heartache and a pain that, that comes with it. And the message of Ecclesiastes is not that life is, is full of good times and bad times, and so you just need to learn to roll with the punches Rather, the message is, is that life is full of good times and bad times that we cannot control. There are seasons in our life and a time for everything, as we saw last week in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. But we don't always do a good job of, of dealing with what life brings us. I mean, take, for example, something as mundane as a time to work and a time to rest. You know, for some of us, we don't know what it's like to get our day started. You know, we, we hit the snooze button about five times because we just want to delay the beginning of the day. And as we get up, 
we're not really finding the joy of what it is to work under the sun. We just dread going to work. But others of us, we actually have the opposite trouble. You know, we, we don't know when to quit work. We take work home with us. We fight the Sabbath rather than enjoying the rhythm of rest that the Lord has built into our lives. We fight against that. Maybe we even go so far as to put relationships on hold so that we can just get a little bit more done, just get another task done. And so we make everyone around us miserable with our unrest. In both cases, we are robbed of the joy as we fight God's bigger pattern for our lives. Well, as we come to to chapter 3, verse 16, Solomon actually comes to a different section. He begins a, a new part, and he's addressing a collection of brief meditations on frustrating and difficult aspects of, of life. He wants, he's sort of forcing us, in essence, to take a clear and a realistic look at what life in a fallen world looks like. Now, as a zealous pastor, I had planned to, to sort of zip through the end of chapter 3 and complete all of chapter 4, and that's not going to happen this morning. Uh, I realized that that, too, was vanity and something that wasn't going to take place. So we're only going to get through chapter 3 uh, or, or, or chapter 4, verse 3 this morning is all the farther we're going to get. So I was planned to look at the heartache that we have in the midst of injustice and oppression. And then I had hoped to look at the heartache in the midst of the rat race of life. But we're only going to look at the first of these, the heartache in the midst of injustice and oppression. And the first thing we see is in verse 16, at humanity's oppression of each other. We see that there is an injustice, that there's impression in uh, oppression in the world in which we live. Verse 16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. You see, Solomon realizes that life as we see it with our naked eye, without the eye of faith in God, is not only futile and meaningless, but it's rampant with injustice all around us. And we don't have to look very far to see someone who is seeking to control another person for their own benefit, do we? We, we have all experienced injustice and, and seeing people seeking to impose their will upon us. And it starts actually at a very young age, even when we're kids. I mean, how many in you in here have heard a kid say, hey, that's not fair? You're probably thinking, I've heard it about a hundred times this week, right? You know, um, because injustice, you know, happens even at a young age. And I don't care whether it's uh, some other kid trying to take the swings away from you because they want to swing in place of you or whether they're cutting in line to go down the slide first, whatever it might be. And you hear the words, but hey, that's not fair. But it doesn't just stop with the playground or with the backyard, but it goes all the way through life. Because we are members of an unjust race. And we know that what causes this is our sin. That life in a fallen world can bring nothing but injustice. But I'm not sure we really believe that. You know, I think for, for most of us, we still expect life to be good and smooth for the most part. 
with little maybe injections of injustice thrown in here and there. And actually, when it does happen, when it does raise its ugly head, we seem surprised, maybe even saddened that it happens, and sometimes even very angry at the injustice that occurs. So it brings us little comfort sometimes to know that sin is the cause when we see the horrific atrocities in life. And of course, there, there are many of them, are there not? There, there are the poor who get poorer because those who are rich are oppressing them. There, there is the, the frustration that comes when legal immigrants have trouble finding a good and decent job. And yet they look at those who are illegal immigrants finding a job with no problem. Uh, it may be school systems that are failing our children or fathers abusing their wives and their children. Um, it may be uh, injustice that is done on a much greater scale. As we read blogs, as we watch newscasts, we see genocide, we see terrorism, we see slavery, we see sex trafficking. We see children living on the streets because their families can't afford to feed them and they don't want to see them starve, so they just release them to the streets or maybe at best seek to put them in an orphanage. But maybe more personally for us, it may be a co-worker who's complaining to your boss about your work or, or maybe a teacher who gives you a lower grade on your papers because of your Christian views. Uh, it may be a classmate at school that's being bullied uh, by classmates because he's different or she's different in some way. Or it may be an elderly widow in your neighborhood who's being tormented by a group of teenagers who constantly vandalize her home. There's no end to the different ways in which humanity wrongs each other and takes advantage of one another. And the preacher's frustration, though, here is not simply that injustice is done, but that it goes unpunished. Even in places that you would expect there to be justice, there is none. Look again at verse 16. In the places of justice, in the place of righteousness, what does he find? Wickedness. You know, in... In places that you would think would be safe, like the home, you know, the, the family that you've been born into, the place where you are to be nurtured and fed and cared for oftentimes becomes a horrific place when there is uh, cases of abuse, when there is infidelity in the marriage. Uh, schools, a place of learning, can be places where you hear more and more of kids that are being bullied and sometimes being physically bullied uh, because the other kids turn against them for some reason. Or even, brothers and sisters, this, this pains me to say this, but even in churches, you know, it's been reported in the news of some churches, uh, authorities in those churches that, that have used their position for their own pleasure and, and have not rightly treated others. So you look at that and you think, well, at least we have our justice system. At least that works, you know. I mean, isn't the symbol of our justice system a, a, a woman with a blindfold and, and scales to show that our justice system is, is one where there won't be partiality when it comes to meeting out justice? 
Well, the reality is, is that ideals and reality are sometimes two different things. That even in our justice system, you know, is, it's, it's not always uh, a just place. You know, every human court, unfortunately, is made up of people under the sun using the wisdom of men and rendering their judgments. And so sometimes you have innocent people who are convicted for crimes that they never committed. And likewise, other people who get away with murder, maybe because they have enough money that they can get the right lawyers that can get them off. Or maybe it's because of a technicality. But nonetheless, even our court system at times can be corrupt. And what's so bad about these things is, is that often there's nothing that can be done about the injustices that we encounter. And when the preacher sees what's happening in the world, when Solomon sees this stuff, he longs for someone to comfort the oppressed and to dry their tears. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He wants to make the wrongs right. He said, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You see, he recognizes that there's really two kinds of people in the world. In this regards, there's the people who oppress others. These are the people, as he says here, who have all the advantages. They have the power on their side. There's nothing that can stop them. And there are those that can do nothing to stop them, those that are being oppressed. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, where someone has come against you, and it may not be physically come against you, but it may be that they have sought to ruin your reputation or, or to say things about you and there was nothing that you could do to stop them. You understand how demoralizing it is to be oppressed by another, to be under someone else's thumb and control. And Solomon understood the pain and the suffering who experienced such oppression uh, in a person's life. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, And I thought the dead who had already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In other words, for those who undergo severe suffering and injustice and oppression, Solomon captures how great the difficulties are. And he states that it's better to be dead than to continue to suffer. And he says, actually, better yet, that a person had never, ever been born in the first place. And, and as I was looking through my Bible this week, I was just struck by how much the scriptures talk about those who are suffering. And I think we've read it so much that sometimes we even begin to look over the top of it and we don't even recognize all the suffering. If I said suffering, and especially injustice and things like that, you may think of Job. As an example, but I was just even thinking this week about Naomi and the book of Ruth and, and how if you look at the opening verses of Ruth chapter one, it's the story of Naomi and how, you know, she she left her home. Uh, you know, her her uh, she left her home. She went to another land. She came back. And she had Ruth with her, and it seems like, okay, now the story starts. That's when we want to engage with that story. But if you stop and pause just a moment and think about how Naomi was living in the land of famine, and as she was preparing meals for her family, most likely she was struggling to make ends meet, to have enough food for her family. And one day her husband comes home and says, we're leaving Israel. We're leaving the promised land. 
we, we are in essence in one sense turning our back upon God and we're going to take control of our own destiny and we're going to fix our problems and we're going to go to Moab to a nearby place that, that does have food. And so they pack up everything they have. She leaves her family, her friends, everything that she has known as she goes to a foreign land and her sons grow up, they get married, but then she buries her husband. And then she buries her first son. Now, brothers and sisters, there is sort of an unspoken rule that says you should never have to bury your children. The pain is so great. But she not only buries one son, she buries another son. And then she eventually comes back to Israel. The famine is lifted, so there's plenty of food. But she is still destitute and scavenging for food. I just... There is just so much suffering that that we see sometimes, and and most of all, people that suffer injustice. Now, how should we respond to this? What does this kind of suffering? How does that fit into our theology? Well, Solomon goes on in verse seventeen, and he gives a good answer to the problem of injustice. He says in his heart, uh, verse seventeen, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. As I said last week, we saw that there's a time for everything under heaven. And Solomon tells us that this includes a time for justice. Now in this life, oftentimes things are unfair in many ways. And there's much suffering. But Solomon tells us that there will be a time in which justice will be done. That, that people may have gotten away with wrongdoings in this life, but God will judge both the righteous and the wicked, that no wrong will go unpunished. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a time for us to pursue justice in this life, okay? It's not like, okay, well, God will just take care of it. I don't have to worry about it as a, as a Christian. Depending upon our place in society, the, the spiritual or civil authority that God has given to us, it's our responsibility to fight against oppression. As fathers and mothers, as pastors and elders, as citizens and public officials, we are called to do what's right in the home and in the church and in society. Unfortunately, even our very best efforts, though, cannot always bring the oppression to an end. And there will be still structures of corruption in business and in government and other areas. Foreign powers will still abuse their people. But in all the situations that we do not have power and authority or wisdom to resolve, God says, do not fret, justice will be done. So our confidence doesn't lie in the justice system, but in the chief justice himself, that is Jesus Christ. You know, we, we look at Christ's ministry here upon the earth and we see how he addresses oppression. Uh, even in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, Matthew tells us of how Jesus went through the uh, cities and the villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and affliction. And it says, as Jesus went around and he encountered all these people, Jesus had compassion for the people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But also Jesus responds to those who are oppressing these people. Uh, an example of this would be even the money changers in the temple. They were exploiting the people, charging large fees. They were also, they set up their wares in the temple court area, which 
then meant that there wasn't room for worshipers to come in and and to worship God. And Jesus uh, becomes very angry. And as we know, he drives them out of the temple area, which this should not surprise us because Jesus Christ is the perfect picture. He is the, the, the perfect revelation of God the Father. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. Okay, so we get a clear picture of the Father as we look at the Son. And, and we see in God that he is never on the side of injustice, but stands against it with all his power. And we see this again throughout Scripture. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, uh, you see that God sent his prophets, like Amos, to preach against people who oppress the poor and crush the needy. He sends Ezekiel uh, to warn about extortion and stealing from foreigners. Uh, Zechariah, who uh, warned against oppressing the widows and the orphans and traveling, travelers and, and the poor. And so it's no accident that when James pens his letter, that the Holy Spirit, through James, writes that pure and undefiled religion is not only to keep oneself unstained from the world, but to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It is to, to, to care and to have compassion because such an attitude towards the oppressed is reflective of the character of our God. If you want to say it's a family trait, brothers and sisters, to have compassion towards those in injustice. And God has promised a day when his son will come to judge the righteous and the wicked. We see that in Acts 17, verse 30. Uh, surely the wicked will be punished forever. If you remember the, the, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, uh, verses 41 to 46, somewhere around that area, and Jesus is standing there, and he takes the sheep who are his people that have obeyed him, and he puts them on the right, and he takes the goats, those even some who profess to be Christians, but who are not, and he casts them on the left into eternal punishment. But the righteous he brings comfort to. And the Bible even tells us in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And so as, as Solomon says at the end of this book, in chapter 12, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or for evil. So our only hope for meaning in this life is that God will bring about judgment and right the wrongs that have been done upon this earth. And so as we peruse Facebook and we come across articles, and brothers and sisters, this is a true article I came across yesterday, of how a CEO is selling the live body parts of babies to those who will pay good money for it. We live in the sure hope and certain expectation of that great day when every injustice will be made right. Now, we can still pray for justice, leaving things in the hands of God, of course, but we must stand upon his promises and we must be patient for his timing. If you think about Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there's a picture where the martyrs for the faith are in glory and they're crying out to the Lord and saying, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge? Because they have been treated unjustly. And oftentimes that is our prayer as well. Lord, how long? It's a good question. When are you going to answer our prayers and bring justice? 
You see, the, the preacher here sees people escaping justice in our lifetime. And the only remedy for this is if there truly is an afterlife where God sorts things out and he pronounces his judgments. And so we come to verses 18 through 22. And, and I have to be very honest with you. This is a difficult, <laughs> this is a very difficult passage. I spent half my time this week just wrestling with these passages and looking at uh, what others were saying on this. And I have to say they wrestled as much as I did. It was very obvious. These are very difficult passages. But as we look at verse 18, uh, Solomon wisely answers. He said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see themselves are but beasts. Our, our present existence in one sense is a proving ground. It's a test not just to see if we pass or fail, but also in the sense of something that demonstrates our, our true character. What, one of the purposes of life is to examine and ultimately to reveal our true relationship with God. And of course, this test isn't for the benefit of God. God knows our heart, but he wants us to recognize our own mortality. We will see our, he wants us to see ourselves for who we are. And, and as Koheleth, as Solomon, as the preacher, uh, goes in these texts, he compares animals to humans. And, and as you read this, you may say, now, wait a minute. This, this sounds like evolutionist, evolutionist, evolutionistic thinking. You know, that animals and humans are the same. There's no differences. And immediately, I'm sure your mind begins to say, now, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that we are only a little lower than the angels with all the animals under our dominion, as we see in Psalm 8? Or didn't God make us in his own images, in image, Genesis 1:27? And doesn't this distinguish us from other creatures in this world? And doesn't the Bible talk about uh, uh, life hereafter and how if we... Uh, are, are absent from the body, then we are present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and the answer is yes and yes and yes. But we must realize that Solomon's not really seeking to set out and to give us a summary statement of life after death. Instead, he's trying to make a point. He's making a specific comparison as we see in verses 19 through 20. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. You see, Solomon is simply wanting to make the point that all of us die. Just like animals, we all die. Uh, like animals, we have been given life and breath by our Creator, but that life will not last forever. And the day will come when we will all will breathe our last, falling to the earth and returning to dust. Now, by using this language of returning to dust, the preacher is reminding us of God's curse against Adam's sin. Remember, he said that dust we are and to dust we shall return. Uh, we see that throughout Scripture. Genesis 3.19, Psalm 90 that we sang about this morning. Death is that great equalizer, and none of us can escape it. But also, death is a message about our sin. When God formed Adam and Eve and placed him in the garden, they were answerable to him. And so when they ate of the forbidden fruit, God came for an answer, and he looked at Adam and Eve, and he says, What have you done? And it wasn't because he didn't know the answer, 
but he was holding them accountable. You see, God brought them into account and death came as a result of Adam's sin. And our death reminds us that we are accountable before God. And so from a human perspective, from the perspective of life under the sun, just by observing things though, uh, you go to a funeral and you take a person, a loved one that you have, and you put them into a ground and you don't know what happens to them after that. You also at the same time have a beloved pet that you take out and you bury in the back 40 of your property and you look at that and you look at that and you, by observation you say, what's the difference? They both have bodies, they both die, we put them both in the ground. Does one go up and one goes down? I, I don't know. We don't know. Uh, we we uh, only know what God has revealed to us. But from a human perspective, uh, it is uncertain. But God... But our death reminds us that we are accountable to God. There, there doesn't seem to be a difference between animals and humans uh, from observation. But God, who is eternal and who is not bound by time nor death, has revealed to us that after death comes judgment. And we all will give an account for our lives. As a matter of fact, that God has revealed this to us, brothers and sisters, is a gift. You know, if we did not have God's revelation about what would happen after this life, we would be just as lost as everyone else. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know because there's no way you can tell just by observation. But it gives us comfort in the midst of injustice and oppression uh, that we face in this life to know that God will make all things right. It brings resolution to the seeming paradox that Solomon was going through. Asaph uh, was going through in Psalm 73 and that we go through when we look at the circumstances of our lives and we're in the midst of injustice and suffering and we don't always understand and we can't make sense of this and we look around at life and we see that the wicked and the oppressors continue to prosper and they seem to, to skirt justice and oftentimes we just say Lord I don't understand this what is going on and he says let me take the veil back and let me let you look into eternity to see that there will be a final judgment. And so God communicates to us that we were made for eternity, that there is an afterlife. And as we face him, we will do so either as our judge condemning us for our sin or we will run into the arms of our dear Savior who already paid the penalty for our sins that we might enjoy fellowship with him. Brothers and sisters, uh, Ecclesiastes 8, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but Ecclesiastes 8 has a lot to say about this. You know, sadly, we, we have the power to, to hurt each other. We see that in Ecclesiastes 8 9. But the preacher reminds us in verse 8 of that same chapter that no man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. Neither can we stop war or damage done by neighbors who try to make life work by means of wickedness. We cannot stop the fact that hypocrisy continues and, and those who indulge in it are oftentimes honored, while the humble men and women of integrity and charity are often overlooked and mistreated, as we see in Ecclesiastes 8.14. And so, as, as we encounter those times of injustice and oppression in our lives, as we're sitting in the chair in our living room, 
we need to remember the message that Jesus has to give to us today. That not only does he set the times and the seasons of our lives, and there will be a season of justice, even though for now that is not necessarily the case, we need to be reminded that he too entered into time by becoming fully man while remaining fully God, and he experienced our suffering and our pain. He too cried as you cry when a good friend dies at a young age like Lazarus did. He too has been abandoned the way that you have been abandoned. He too has overcome the way uh, many of you have overcome. He too has felt the brokenness of betrayal that maybe you have. And he too has died as we all will one day die. But the difference is that when he died, the sting of death was taken. And so he promises us that. I want to just close today by just reading some passages from Isaiah 53 for us to understand um, what Christ has, has done for us and how the Bibles describe him in terms of his identity with his people and their suffering. And to know that he not only identifies us, but he is the one who will make all wrongs right. Listen to Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Skipping down to verse 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he has taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Our God not only understands our suffering, our God not only will make our suffering right, but brothers and sisters, we at times are the oppressors. Kids, at times, you do not treat your brothers and sisters the way you should. Sometimes you are cruel to them. Sometimes we as Christians are cruel to one another. And yet Christ died to pay the penalty for those sins. That we, would not, that we might not just face him as our judge one day, but we might face him as our Savior. Oh, Lord, praise be to God. 
that he is so good to his people. Let's take a moment and bow our heads as we meditate upon this word this morning. Lord Jesus, when we encounter those times in our lives when people treat us wrongly, it is so easy for us to become angry. Lord, even to feel justified against their sin. And God, we sometimes even slip into pride and arrogance, thinking that we are better than them. But Lord, we thank you for showing us that that's not true, that we are the same, that we are people that have sinned against your holy, righteous character. But you have taken care of those sins and you have paid those. Oh Lord, please humble us as your people. God, cause us to to be patient with those that wrong others as you are patient with them. Maybe God seeking that you would grant them repentance unto eternal life. And Lord, in those times that, that we have, that we are suffering, we pray that you would keep our eyes upon you to know that you are a God that understands our suffering, that you bring comfort to us even in this life as we can rest upon your promises, but also, Lord, knowing that there is a time for everything, a time for injustice, but also that there will be a time of justice and looking forward to that judgment Lord, that's the only thing that makes sense in this world, that there would be a righting of all wrongs. Otherwise, this is just a cruel existence that we live in. We thank you, God, for your wonderful promises and your wonderful work uh, in, in, uh, in these matters. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.